all these different things are all things that can help wire our brain for optimism and hope and self-regulation. And if we did those things proactively, um, I think we would see different things in our kids. The problem is that we only want to do reactionary things with behavior. We only want to do something when there's behavior there. When there's no behavior, we do nothing. But that doesn't mean the kids have the skill set whenever stress hits them wrong or whenever they're really having a hard time. So just because the kid is compliant doesn't mean they have the skills. Welcome to Rotten Apples, where we share the best ideas in education, whether it's learning space design, restorative practice, or simply teacher self-care. We're learning from the experts who cut through the BS and find out what's really working and what's not in our classrooms and schools, making St. Louis home to the best educators in practice today. So part one of our conversation with Michelle Benedict on trauma in schools was a really big, broad overview of what trauma is, what trauma-informed looks like, um, and you know some sort of basic things to keep an eye out for, not just with our own kids' health, but with our health, with other staff members. Um, there's just a whole lot going on there. And so the second segment, it's broken down just a little bit more into what does trauma-informed actually look like, practically speaking? Like, what are the, the elements that we see? Uh, what are the behaviors that we see that, you know, give us an idea that we're kind of on the right track? And after listening again to the first part, something really kind of struck me uh, on a second listen that puts even more of this into context. She mentioned that one of the least popular things that she says to teachers is that teachers are actually the uh, number one reason why situations escalate in classrooms. And I'm sure they don't like hearing that. No teacher wants to hear that they're actually contributing to the problem and making it worse. But after I thought about that for a little while, I thought, you know what, I think in every circumstance where that happened in my classroom, um, I did make it worse. Uh, it's not that I should have done nothing, but it, there were definitely better ways to handle situations so that they didn't escalate completely out of control. And when I started reflecting on that a little more in light of what we're talking about this time, it was easier for me to control that when things were going fine, you know, for me and in other areas. But if I was stressed or tired or hungry, you know, certainly that would play into it sometimes. Uh, it, it was a lot easier to jump on kids and to not find creative ways for uh, de-escalating a problem. And so what we're going to get into a little bit here too is how to make sure that your own mental health is a priority for you uh, every day. And I know that self-care is a really big topic of conversation, but what it actually looks like and what you're doing at the beginning of your day to really put yourself in the right mindset so that when things do come at you, you're not, you know, totally reactionary. And just even thinking about what she says in this episode and the other jobs that I've had, the ones that should have been the most stressful were actually the least because I was so aware of the fact that it could spin out of control. And so I was really, really diligent and careful about how I did things. But then when I was in a job where things were relatively okay, it was real easy for me to kind of fly off the handle for no reason sometimes. So in light of all of those things, she's going to talk a little bit here about um, what is the current definition of trauma-informed, how might that evolve, you know, in light of this whole crisis that we're dealing with now, 
And uh, what are some really simple, basic things that you can do for yourself and even for your classroom? She talks a lot about environment, learning space design, and uh, those things are all extremely helpful in figuring out just what are some, a couple of really basic practical tips that you can use. At one point, I do point out that it feels a little overwhelming because we're getting into, really getting into the weeds here, but really think carefully about your own school, your own situation as you listen to the conversation and think about what are the things that you could do that are very low cost, very low investment in terms of your time and your resources, and something that you can do that might make a really, really surprising difference to your classroom. So with all the things that you've talked about, you definitely have a trauma-informed classroom, you know, at least. But maybe talk a little bit about what does it mean then to be a trauma-informed school, you know, mm -hmm. by whatever the, whatever the acceptable definition is right now. And then even beyond that, because whatever they have as the definition is probably nowhere near as far as you would, you know, want right. to go here. So what would, you know, your ideal trauma-informed school that, you know, kind of curates and um, helps everyone's mental health, what would that look like? What might that entail? Well, I think um, if, uh, as far as, uh, yeah, trauma-informed definition, that would be funny, right? Uh, I think it would be different for different people. I think mostly what I would, what I consider the definition of a trauma-informed would be, um, would be considering the whole child and their experiences and the experiences of all the adults um, to be able to create an environment that um, everyone feels safe and, and, um, and regulated um, and able to do at work at their best capacity. So I guess that would be my uh, my way. And so there's a lot of other things that go with that, it, like equity, um, they, that kind of uh, rolls into there. Also just thinking it, like I said, about the whole child, not just their learning, but also about their physical and mental and emotional health. So as far as a school, um, I think ideally, I would love to see more, uh, more service providers in schools. Um, to start with, I think that every school needs a social worker on, in their building. Um, because I, I know most districts, uh, the, the social workers travel from building to building, especially in the elementary. Um, and I think every, every school, um, uh, just like a counselor, I think there should be a social worker that's helping provide um, not only, um, you know, services to, uh, to uh, families to help them get resources for what they normally do, but they offer a lot of mental health, um, uh, you know, they have a lot of mental health background too. So they could be also working specifically with teachers um, to help them look at their classrooms in a different way. Um, I really think that more schools need to look less like businesses um, and, and less like traditional schools. This is where my, my buddy Bob Dylan would love um, to go in and you know help every school redesign based on what their needs are. And I uh, agree with his thought process a whole lot in that we uh, design spaces um, before we think about how those spaces are gonna be used, before we really think about um, how they feel. And so I wish more schools would spend more time making schools feel like home and less like a business. Um, because uh, in order to be regulated, some of that needs um, just some comfort. And so thinking about things like flexible seating and whatnot, but they need to be used intentionally. Um, I, I read an article, in fact, Bob posted it about it being kind of a fad to have flexible seating. Well, it is if you just go out and buy a bunch of different kinds and don't even know how they're going to be used and don't really think about um, how, uh, you know, what, you know, all those different factors that go into play whenever you just buy stuff. Um, so I think intentionality of the spaces. I really wish that we grouped kids differently. 
um, especially, uh, well, I think in every grade level, but I think especially when you see elementary, because kids work in different um, different paces and different um, subjects. So I wish we did a little more flexible grouping with that. And then kids could move up in the areas that they are good at uh, in different grades, but still, you know, be in whatever, you know, reading class they needed to be in, whatever math class, that way they could progress as they needed to. And I think that's one of the things I do like about virtual learning, especially that's one of the only things I really like about the software that we have, um, that we're using in our district is that kids can pace themselves. So if they wanna keep working, um, and they're good at what they're doing, then they can keep going. And that's something that makes it really tricky in school as far as differentiation is letting kids do that stuff that's beyond what we can do when we're spending a lot of time in elementary rem remediating. So if we were working with all kids that were in the same range just so that they could move up, you know, then, then the next, you know, as kids needed to, as they got to the next thing, they could just move classes. It wouldn't even be a thing. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. It's just like flexible grouping that you do for guided reading, except looking at it in a whole school. Um, and I think that could be uh, really successful because then people could really see where the interventions need to play in, especially overlapping interventions. Because I think that's a problem in our schools is that we have a lot of kids that need the same intervention, but they're in different classrooms. And so they can't really access the intervention the same way if it was being done consistently for all the kids who need it. Um, and so that's something that would be um, uh, much more available if kids were flexibly grouped and not so much by grade level, but by ability and how they could do things. And I know people are like, well, that's tracking. Well, yes and no, uh, because uh, tracking would be, we'd keep them on that same track forever. Um, ability grouping means as they, uh, as they are able and as we help them move up, then they can move up as they need to. And it, they, would, they aren't stuck in one track forever. So that's the difference whenever people are saying that I, uh, that I think tracking is good. But no, but I do think flexible grouping is good because I, like, for example, I have two kids that are gifted, um, my, my two um, kids that are graduating this year, and they were always super high in reading and probably could have been, you know, doing upper grade reading for a long time, but really needed remediation in math. Um, and so they could have been, you know, doing higher level reading, whereas their classrooms couldn't always do the high reading because not all the kids were there. So they wouldn't read the same novels that my kids could read. And so sometimes they were a little bored in reading when they could have been moved up to the next grade level just in reading and then working in math and whatever grade level they needed to. So that would be the start. Um, as far as physical space, like I said, feeling like it was a little more like home. Um, and so less fluorescent lighting, I think, number one. Um, more ambient lighting. I wish we'd just get rid of the fluorescence altogether. I know they're a cheap way to do it. I used to sell lighting, so I understand why they do it in buildings. Um, however, um, we need to just turn them off. Honestly, all year, I did not turn on my fluorescence, uh, that my lights didn't come on, my overhead lights didn't come on at all this year. Um, a sub tried to turn them on, and halfway through the day, my kids were having such a bad day, the neighbor teacher finally clued her in that she needed to turn those lights on, or turn up, you know, my other lights on and turn those lights off. But lighting, I think if we would pay attention to the sensory input that kids are getting, um, our, our spaces are very overwhelming. And so whenever you used to walk into my classroom, it felt very zen-like. There was music going, the lights were low, all the colors are, um, I just work with gray and neutrals um, because uh, lots of colors can be overwhelming for kids with sensory issues. And so just making it very calm. And so uh, another thing, as far as I said, social workers, but I didn't talk about the other people, um, social workers in every building, Counselors, uh, we need more of them. So I know in my building of 400 some kids, there's only one, that's not enough. One person cannot help 
or, or even go in to do lessons and small groups with one person for 400 kids. That's not, that's not appropriate. We would never have one teacher for 400 people. So we need to give uh, more mental health uh, people in our buildings. Um, the next person I think that we really need more of is an occupational therapist. Um, I think one of those should be in more buildings. And I think we need to use that person to their capacity because we don't understand until you get into the world of SEL and um, trauma-informed how beneficial their skill sets really are. They understand a lot of the physical things that can be triggers, especially when we're talking about early childhood and the young K2 kids, when they're not getting, for example, enough vestibular motion, some of the things that they can uh, do as far as acting out behaviors. And you might not understand where that's coming from, why that kid might be rocking or sitting perched in their chair all the time, but they're looking for certain kinds of input in their body and they need that to wire their brain appropriately for large and small motor movement. And so, and those can, but those things can turn into behaviors if you're telling that kid to sit still. Um, so it, it, I think having their skill set, and I really didn't understand the capacity of what they know until I started down this road and working with many other professionals, but occupational therapists have a wealth of understanding for how to do behavior interventions and we're not using them. And I don't understand why. Um, I don't think that's or even on my radar. I just, I've li this is literally the first conversation I've ever had in education about <laughs> occupational therapist. I know it's so funny, but uh, what they know and understand about uh, interventions, is, especially with kids who have uh, a lot of acting out and big behaviors, things like heavy work, uh, things like doing certain kinds of stretches, uh, kids who are on, uh, you know, unbalanced or um, or or klutzy. Uh, even though that seems like it's not related to behavior, it can be. Uh, there's things that and exercises they can do, specifically interventions with kids that can help with some of those motor inputs that can that can regulate kids at that K2, especially pre-K2, and that can set them up for success or failure forever. If you have a high schooler that still perches in their chair, most likely they weren't getting something wired correctly in early childhood. And when you understand that, and then you're like, that can be a trigger for people. Like you can make that sit still or um, you can't sit that way into a thing uh, that can cause a kid trauma because they're trying, their body doesn't even know why they're doing it, but they're doing it to try to, um, to remediate this, uh, this deficit that they have when they're not wired correctly in early childhood. So um, OTs are incredible. <laughs> so, uh, whenever I started learning about the brain, uh, that was the next area that I started learning about. And I, I, I kind of wish that I would have, I would have become an occupational therapist instead of a teacher, because I think, um, I would have been, uh, uh, that would, that would have been awesome. But, uh, finally, I think we all need to be doing more, uh, proactive counseling, um, I know that uh, a lot of schools do a really great job with teachers. I mean, the counselors being able to come in for lessons and things like that. But that's not been my uh, not been my experience in the schools that I've worked in. Um, most of the time, the counselors might get in one or two times a year. Um, but that's that's something that we need kids to understand some certain things that teachers don't have time to necessarily teach. And since we have all these extra things taken away as far as time slots for um, you know, different kinds of uh, um, school-wide functions and whatnot. I think we need to start looking at our time and are we, are we building social emotional um, skills and executive functioning skills um, so that we can recoup all this time that we're wasting on behavior, on, on chasing behavior. So if we had some things that were in place, a tier one, 
Um, for example, if we had movement breaks tier one through the building in elementary, that could look like every single time they change an activity. That's a lot in kindergarten and they probably already do a lot of that. But people forget when they get to fifth grade, they need to do that too, that they still need big movement um, in order to keep their brain regulated. If you did tier one, um, mindful breathing, um, in elementary, that would look like three times a day. In middle school or high school, that could look at the beginning and ending of every block. So just one minute, you could recoup, and, and that would give them how many times? I mean, I think my kids take six or seven classes a day. That would be 14 times they'd be breathing for a minute. That's the that's more than the, what science would tell us would help us learn to regulate our brains over time. And so that would be such a gift. Um, and I think even if they did, um, it, you can do it in different ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be sit and do the breathing. It could be, um, it could be stretches. It could be like you were saying, yoga things. It could be journaling. It could be listen to this song for one minute and then let's talk about how it makes us feel. It could be a gratitude practice where we take a few breaths and then think about the one thing um, that we're grateful for. It could be what's happened that's positive since the last time we were in class. So, you know, these all these different things are all things that can help wire our brain for optimism and hope and self-regulation. And if we did those things proactively, um, I think we would see different things in our kids. The problem is that we only want to do uh, reactionary things with behavior. We only want to do something when there's behavior there. When there's no behavior, we do nothing. But that doesn't mean the kids have the skill set to do stuff whenever stress hits them wrong or whenever they're really having a hard time. So just because the kid is compliant doesn't mean they have the skills. And so but we assume that. So that's why we don't do tier one behavior interventions, but they need to be done. We need to teach kids. How do you sit and focus? So you can't sit and tell kids you need to focus. Well, what does that look like? You know, we assume so much out of kids and then we wonder why they get so frustrated so easily. If we didn't explicitly tell them exactly what we want, they want to please us most of the time. But if they don't understand, then it's really easy to feel triggered and shut down and then explode because you handed them something they didn't get and didn't have an understanding of. Um, and so I think I think also another really important thing if we did a school from scratch is wraparound services for teachers as well. I think we need a, a tap in and tap out system um, so that there's somebody that can tap in uh, and out for teachers as they need different things. So for example, uh, somebody who was having, uh, you know, maybe that teacher didn't get a lot of sleep and they would be able to check in at the beginning of the day with the administrator, just like the same way kids check in. So maybe there's a little Google form that you just click a couple things and how you're feeling. And that way they would know, hey, I didn't, I'm not, I'm feeling, uh, you know, one, two or three today. And maybe on the ones I'm going to go, you know, tap in and tap out or give that teacher um, an extra chance or, or check in with that teacher. Because there were times, you know, in a whole week, um, my administrator who's busy, you know, if I didn't say I needed help, I might not have a conversation with them. But that doesn't mean I probably don't need that conversation. Just like with our kids, just because I'm not raising the red flag doesn't mean I don't need help. And so if we did these things proactively, yeah. You see and what I mean? I think that's what we really hit on here with everything that you mentioned, you know, going through the environmental design of the space, the different roles that you're talking about, um, the teacher and leader support mechanisms that really should be in place. You're talking about shifting from what is a very, very reactive environment to a proactive one. And I don't think I ever really thought about it that way until you're talking about this because 
you see it in almost all, like there's schools that do various levels of this, um, right. either here or abroad. You know, we see, I definitely, when I uh, travel, I see a lot of schools that do things like this, but it's a very, especially in Finland um, and Sweden, they, it's a very proactive mentality. Everything That's what is I like about their, right. yeah, their model works for a reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. everything is is very very proactive and it's i get annoyed when i hear things like you know well that's tracking kids too no it's treating them like individual learners you know and yeah. not everybody is you know going to be the same way the same time um, our system if it feels cold and calculating it's because it was set up for that very purpose it was set uh-huh. up so that you know our kids would grow up to be really great little factory workers but we just don't right. need that anymore and yet no. remnants of that system continue to pervade and And we can talk about all of these different things. And certainly, I think the one that resonated most with me, because I hit on this a lot, education doesn't do this nearly as well as some other industries. And that's really taking some time to cultivate the individuals that are in leadership, including teachers, since they're leading, you know, their classrooms and really looking at, you know, what's working for you, what's not working for you, what do you need your job more effectively, how to be, you know, more contented, pleasant person, so that Mm -hmm. that trickles down, you know, everywhere else. And there's, from what I've been able to observe and or experience myself, there's very, very little (laughs) of that. Um, So, yeah, I think even just a couple of these things that you're talking about, even just shifting that a little bit, uh, Mm -hmm. and even things like the schedule that's really set up just to react to things. It's not really, you know, designed to get ahead of it in any way. Um, yeah, that's all really good stuff to think about. And I'm actually working with a friend on a book on strategic planning. So you just added a chapter for me. So thank you. <laughs> no problem. So so one other thing that I said, or well, I guess two other things I think, and, and thinking about a school from scratch, um, thinking about those Maslow's needs, um, I think um, if we made things like regular, you know, we already do a great job with breakfast, um, our breakfast program, you know. Um, we do a great job with lunch. I do think that we need to think about how our our, our meals are um, the time that we are using and the the uh, rushness of it. I think we need to be really careful about how much we're rushing kids to eat. If they if their other needs are being met as far as uh, social, then they won't feel so much need to spend all their time socializing during lunch um, that they might actually want to eat. So thinking about that is a really good one. And maybe even, I know some other countries do things like family style meals. I know that's really hard to think about, but something that you that would make uh, it feel a little more connected um, where you eat like a family. Um, and that would be really nice. Um, I don't know how teachers would feel about it, but that's something I most of the time ended up with kids in my room to eat lunch anyway. So um, sometimes <laughs> I would just go eat in the lunch room, but it's really loud there. So I would that's something that I told the kids I'd rather have them have lunch in my room so that I could have a little, still some quiet time. The other thing is building in more time for um, for physical activity in that and and things that kids would enjoy. So I wish more schools had things like a Wii. Uh, I know that's out, and some kids think that's outdated, but having novel things like that for kids to be physically active um, and making that a part of the culture is important. Physical activity does so many great things for stress relief. And and some kids think that they have to be good at gym to be good at other things, but there's so many different kinds of physical activity. And I think if that was built in and we saw teachers taking part of it, maybe um, instead of one of the special areas, you know, sometimes they would have different classes kids could choose. 
Um, maybe the special area teachers could could have something, uh, you know, or some other elective like, oh, we're going to we're going to have a yoga class. She can only go once a week. And it's um, you have to go instead of going to, you know, this other class, you go to this. Uh, as, I don't know how it could work logistically, but it seems like we could have other things that were mental health choices for kids who needed those uh, those other things are just maybe uh, we're better at some things than others um, and just needed other ways to regulate. But um, I just really think that if we made it uh, more choice driven in uh, in that way, giving kids a little bit more options, we would we would also see behavior DS, you know, go down because kids are looking for a power. Just they want to feel like they have uh, they are included and their voice is heard and that they have choice. And I, I feel like sometimes we plan all these things around without, like you said, asking teachers, asking kids. But when we do, they will tell us how to teach them. I mean, if I, every quarter I do a plus delta in my classroom. Um, and how does how does the room feel? Is there anything we're doing in our classroom that you love? Is there anything that you wish we do less of or more of? So we did that as a reflection. Um, so I could continually change the classroom to make it more fit my my kids that were in it. And um, I think those kinds of things need to be done more so that you you don't set up the environment for you, that you do set up the environment for them, um, that you do um, ask um, teachers, you know, how do you want the, uh, the, you know, the schedule? How can we work on the schedule? Because it does seem like those kinds of things just roll out without a lot of um, input from the people who have to do them. <laughs> and, that, and then how are, you, how are you expecting to get buy-in or consistency among what you're doing if you have different levels of buy-in because they don't even understand why maybe what you're doing makes sense. So I do think that if we did more things like you were saying proactively, it would change the game. But I think we've, like you said, also we've just gotten in this way of, of reactiveness. And I think now I, I, this is a great pause for all of us to reflect on uh, to reflect on our practices and to say, okay, we don't have to continue to be reactive. We can build some new structures that will not take much work to be proactive. So starting with the environment, let's look at the environment. Let's look at the the lights. Let's look at the sound. And I swear if people would just pay, play a little bit of ambient music in their classroom, there's so much great research on music being played. Um, and there's so many great instrumental bands that kids um, love. I'll tell you, um, there's some, my favorite is Tycho. If you've never listened to Tycho, it's amazing. Um, but it's, it's wordless, upbeat music. So it's kind of sounds sometimes a little bit like what the, we'd be playing on a video game. And so I think that's why they like it because it's kind of sounds like the music they like, but I'm um, thinking about that oral experience as well. Um, because some kids need that for self-regulation, thinking about, um, the chairs, the seats, the, the voice level from the teacher, the teacher, uh, how, how is that teacher um, talking? I mean, uh, I think it's really important to keep your voice low all the time. I mean, I talk to my kids in my class like this, maybe a little louder, but, uh, but basically I try to keep it really, you know, really, um, really calm so that they are in turn very calm. So. Well, and there's so many different, I mean, we're listing off just a ton of things and I can, I can hear listeners wincing right now thinking, oh my God, there's, this is a huge list. How do I even get started? But you just pick one. So start with lighting. Start with sound. Those two things are game changers. Lighting and sound. If you just look at your room and, and calm that lighting down and think about some sound, 
uh, even if it's rain, even the waves, whatever makes you feel good. And then try some different things and let kids choose. So believe it or not, my kid's favorite is this like sound of flying over Norway. It's this like, it's really funny. Um, anyway, so, but I tried a bunch of different things and then I found what worked um, as far as sound. Um, but just lighting and sound, it's those are game changers because those both uh, are huge triggers for kids who have sensory things. And most kids nowadays have some level of sensory um, issue. Yeah. So. And it's the, the thing too, with a lot of people, if you hear something that sounds really exciting that you really want to do, but it sounds expensive and time consuming. So find a way to do it so that it's not, you know, yeah. expensive or time. consuming. So I would say, don't knock the we, all right. My kids, the very don't first the thing that they got stuck at home, they dug it out of the basement. <laughs> I know all these people bought this new Animal Crossing game and we still have our old Animal Crossing from the Wii and it works just fine and she loves it. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, and it reminded me, there was a, a teacher who was, you know, kind of struggling with the body movement, you know, stuff that she wanted to do. And so she decided, just asked her principal, hey, I'm going to run this experiment. It's kind of crazy. Would you let me do it just a few times just to see what happens? And, you know, he's like, sure, why not? So she took her backup television that she had, you know, television it was on a cart in her room and she brought it out into the hallway and played um attached her computer and played i guess youtube has a bunch of these like yeah, just yeah, dance video games yeah. where you can dance yes yeah. so she just played it in the hallway and she told the kids that in between classes she said look if you're late that's on you okay you need right. to decide but here it is but he would, just, he would walk by and just jump in and do a couple right? of dances and it was so funny because she found in talking to other people where these kids, you know, came in, they were like all of a sudden energized when they should have been exhausted, you know, during exactly. first or second period. <laughs> and that's why, why, that's why, like I said, those two things, if you can get kids moving more and if you can get them breathing more, you will see completely different kids. So I guess the four takeaways are look at your lighting, think about your sound in your room. Um, think about how much more movement you can do, especially whenever we're coming back, because a lot of these kids have been sitting on video games for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, and um, and also thinking about a breathing practice. Um, and I have lots of resources. If you uh, if anyone is interested, they are welcome. I'm, I've, I've been doing free classes online um, to teach teachers how to um, start a practice. And then I can uh, also teach you how to implement one in your classroom. And I'm happy to do any of that for free because honestly, it was such a life changer for me that I want. It's like a present that I get to give to other people. And I like giving you that present because you need it. You need to be self-regulated and your kids need to be self-regulated. And I promise you, you'll you'll recoup so much of your instructional minutes if you um, if you do those four things to think about the sound, the light, the movement and breathing. That's all great advice, and I will definitely attach everything that you have to the show notes, everybody, so you can learn a lot more about Michelle and all of the work that she's done and um, the many, I know you partner with a lot of different groups and mm -hmm. um, you know, conduct workshops and speak and everything, and so that's all really great information, so thanks for that. Okay, so I think we're going to wrap up with just some lighter okay. things. Sounds good. <laughs> heavy is trauma informed um yes. so we just try to wrap up with you know some interesting questions try to get to know you a little bit better so question number one and i love this one this is always my favorite the best groupon i used for something fun to do was was uh for um 
the uh, oh my goodness, it just okay. So the Shining was filmed at um, the Stanley Hotel uh, in in Estes Park. And my son and I are both avid Stephen King. Uh, readers and that was one of his and my bucket list things and I found it on Groupon a weekend visit in that a hotel with a ghost tour and we stayed in Estes Park at that hotel and it was amazing a very much oh, a cool bucket list thing <laughs> that is so cool. that's why I was like asking that question because the things yes. that people find on there I'm like that's a thing really <laughs> yeah you just have to go to that you have to go to the city you want to go to whenever you're going out of town and you'd be surprised what kind of cool things you can find so yeah Oh, you wouldn't. I had two friends that I used to work with who would travel to these. They they would go on weekend trips just to find weird museums that right. they never found. Did you know there's a museum of torture in Illinois? I did know that. I did know that. It's I on my did list. Know that. That's it's crazy. Yeah, I know. I need to go. That's a weird one, but okay. yes. <laughs> okay, next one. Uh, one person in the region outside of education who inspires me is? Is J.G. Larichette. He was a third grade teacher and he started a mindfulness program in his class, uh, which uh, then he started one in his school. And now he runs a huge nonprofit that teaches it um, uh, throughout the Richmond and San Francisco metropolitan area. And they go in with, he trains teachers. He has a whole team of teachers and they go in and teach it um, two kids individually in classes. So it's like a service provider program. Oh, that sounds great. Okay. Last one. When you are avoiding work, where could we find you? Outside playing in the dirt, probably with plants. Um, I propagate a lot of plants. So um, I propagate spider plants, especially because everybody, um, uh, likes to have a, a nice house plant and since they propagate quickly, um, I'm, I was actually just doing that yesterday, pulling out plants and, uh, and splitting them up and, and giving them away, so. Oh, that's lovely. We just planted our garden too, just in time for the hey. monstrous thunderstorms that <laughs> came in and drowned them all last Oh night. no! <laughs> uh, they'll be all right, <laughs> maybe. I hopefully. also really like to travel and camp, so I've camped in 47 of the 50 states, so. Wow, mm -hmm. really, which one was your favorite? Oh, uh, right now, Montana probably is my favorite because I love Glacier National Park. Um, I love Canada, too. I've camped across Canada. I really love Canada. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah that's, I haven't been, but there's a train that I kind of have my eye on <laughs> in Canada that I'd like to go to. So, well, that's good because, I mean, we're, I don't know about everybody else, but we're definitely planning more camping after this is all over because we can still do social distancing that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Well, we got to get out of the house. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, as soon as they as soon as they uh, start letting us go, I'm going to be on the road. I promise you that um, I, I need to I, I usually go for about 30 days at a time. So during the summer. So I'm I think I'm going to do a remote one and then people are going to be scared on Facebook that I didn't check in. But it'll be fine. I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, Michelle Benedict, thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate all of the information. Thanks, Amy. It was great helping you guys and learning a little bit from you too. So I love, uh, I love having conversations like this around, around this topic. Okay, everyone. I hope you heard something new and useful today. If you want to learn more or have an idea for a future episode of Rotten Apple, just go to educatestl.org where you'll find resources and links from today's chat and fun news and event information for educators all over the STL. 
Thanks for listening and connecting with all of us rotten apples and for doing what you can to get better every single day. See you soon.